Perverted, brought to you by Sputnik Africa. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Afro Verdict podcast with your host Victor Anakin. And today we are about to explore the intersection of African philosophy, culture and society. As the episode is dedicated to World Philosophy Day, and of course I am excited to have with me a renowned decolonial and post-colonial theorist, Professor Sabelo Ndlovo-Gaceni. Prof is a Zimbabwean scholar currently serving as the Chair of Epistemologies of the Global South at the University of Bayreuth in Germany. He is also the author of several books including Theory and Practice of African Revolution and African Philosophy, the Critique of Western Reason. And jumping back to the class of philosophy for a second, epistemology now is the theory of knowledge. Right, so the difference, for example, between ontology and epistemology. Ontology asks what exists, but epistemology poses the question of how do people know what exists. And in this extremely interesting conversation, I will speak to Professor Ndlovgaceni about decolonizing knowledge and decolonizing the understanding of certain concepts that we have today. Professor Lovu Gacheni, thank you for joining me today on Afro Verdict. A huge welcome to you. Starting with the first and foremost question, what motivated you to focus your academic and intellectual work on Africa? And thank you so much for for inviting me to this uh, uh, event, and uh, thank you for the question on the question of why I'm working on um, Africa. First of all, I'm an African. That is the 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 first the first point, and uh, and uh, that means that uh, I think from where I am, and uh, being born on the continent, having done my education on the continent, automatically it meant that if it was not for colonialism, we needed to start with Africa, thinking from Africa into the world. Of course, as you know, with our colonial education, sometimes we started with England while our bodies were still on the continent. Uh, but uh, for me, when I became conscious of who I am and uh, became conscious of my place, uh, I thought the correct cognitive process is start from where you are into other parts of the world. And uh, this means that we start by engaging with issues which are to do with us as Africans and then think into the world from Africa. So Africa becomes, to me, an epistemic departure point for all those who are based on the continent. And that is a normal process. Um, if you have people who are based on the continent, but their departure point is Europe or something else. There's something wrong somewhere. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't mean that if you are based on the continent, of course, you only deal with African issues. Uh, but the, your departure point, your locus of enunciation, your standpoint, you can only think from where you are, isn't it? So I think uh, as an African, that's one thing which makes me to always anchor African issues. They are closer to me they affect me. Uh, of course, other global issues also affect me, 
but I absorb and understand and 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 express my worldview from where I am. Uh, and when I'm saying where I am, I don't mean physically. Mm-hmm. I mean mm-hmm. epistemically. I'm now based in Germany physically, but still in terms of thinking, I'm thinking from the continent. I think you and I can um, relate to some point because uh, when creating this podcast, I also thought that apart from issues and events on the African continent, global issues are also just as important, but it is important to provide a multitude of opinions. And for example, the Afroverdict podcast focuses on providing an African opinion or African opinions on not only issues that take place on the continent, but globally as well. So in, in that sense, I can I can quite relate with you. Hey, but at the same time, we need to underscore that most of what we consider to be African problems today are actually global problems. So it is, is a matter of locus of enunciation. Where do you see the problems from? So we normally see the problems from where we are. And this is why we, we articulate things from an African point of view. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Yeah. No. I see what you mean. I haven't thought of that previously. Tell me. Do you think African philosophers and their contributions are generally underrated or overlooked in mainstream academia? It's not about me thinking. It is a reality. They are marginalized. As you know, there is what we call global economy of knowledge, and the global economy of knowledge at the center of it is a, an uneven intellectual division of labor in which uh, those who are based uh, in the on Africa, uh, they don't get the same airtime as those who are based in Europe and North America. They don't get the same spaces to express their ideas in terms of journals, in terms of dominant presses. So basically, we produce a lot of work from the African continent we produce also a lot of work which is written in African languages and that does not travel beyond where they are produced because the languages of communication at a global scale are the six colonial languages, English, French, Portuguese, Italian, uh, you can add to the others. Uh, so in that sense, it, 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 it basically marginalizes the, the, the thinking of the philosophers from Africa. There's an obvious Western epistemological hegemony that dwarfs non-Western philosophers like you described now. Could you perhaps elaborate on this statement? Yeah, of course, the dominant epistemology uh, up to now is actually the Eurocentric colonial epistemology. And this epistemology was imposed uh, through colonialism. Uh, And uh, even though we fought for decolonization um, politically, uh, but in terms of the epistemological hegemony of the thinking from Europe and North America, it is still dominant. And uh, you can see it in terms of who are the theorists or who are the widely quoted philosophers. They are always white dead men of Europe and North America. And even in those, among those, even women are marginalized. So the, 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 and the whole struggle which I've been involved in for the past two decades is the struggle for decolonizing knowledge. And that struggle for decolonizing knowledge is actually predicated on exactly the question which you are, you are, you are posing. 
in which even in terms of universities, we tend to have universities in Africa, but they are not African university yet. So they are in our places, they might even have native names like University of Zimbabwe, but at the same time, is it of Zimbabwe? When I studied at the University of Zimbabwe, for instance, if you went to the Department of Sociology, the canon, which was called the canon of sociology, it was Mark Kalimax, Max Weber, it was these dead white men as the canon. If you want to understand sociology, you must understand from their worldview. And the idea of really an African sociologist, an African philosopher, this is why even African philosopher was said to be a thin of philosophy. In other words, it is not it is not at the level of of, of Western philosophy, which claims universality. Yeah, it's like it's posed as an offshoot, not as an original uh, way of thinking. And would would you say, are there any signs of change in this regard, particularly in the context of the emerging discourse of decolonization and post-colonial studies? Of course, uh, all the achievements which we can calculate, they are products of resistance and the struggles. They are never given on a silver platter. So uh, we are making... Um, headway. But uh, as you know, this idea of knowledge, the unevenness in knowledge production is also linked to the political economy itself, the economies of scale, in which uh, even those who are producing knowledge from Africa, they are underfunded compared to those who are producing knowledge from Europe and North America. And because of that, you will find that we are somehow subordinated to a a Eurocentric uh, driven knowledge system, uh, even the funding which we received when we were based in African universities, mainly is from Europe. Uh, the partnerships which we create with the, with the colleagues in Europe is always, uh, there is an uneven power dynamic because the other one brings the money and uh, you participate on the terms detected by money. As they say, the one who pays the money calls the calls the tune or something like that. So it's a it's a it's a struggle which we are, invo- we are involved in. But you can see the 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 little advances which we've made. A person like me who studied at the University of Zimbabwe spent almost 20 years in South Africa. I'm actually now professor and the chair in epistemologies of the global south at the University of Beirut here in Germany. And you could not imagine such a chair uh, five years or ten years ago, it it is actually a product of these decolonial studies. You will find that if you scan through the adverts for intellectual and academic jobs across the world, there is an emphasis on the scholars who are doing post-colonial, decolonial, uh, black politics, indigenous studies. So there is some movement, but the danger is that we might actually be also falling into another trap that uh, the, this invitation, you are invited into, into a stage which is already set. And generally, it is this issue of, uh, I will call you to the stage, but you will dance to my tune. Um, so it might actually defend and dilute the revolutionary force of decolonial thinking. All right. So in other words, there is this risk of... Um sort of falling prey to, as if it may seem like it's a favor of, here you go, I'm coming down and giving you this opportunity, but in return, you must be grateful and so on and so forth. Yeah, in fact, there are people who, there are some 
scholars who have moved from the global south who are who think the their duty is to be thankful rather than to say i've shifted the front for fighting and i need to fight now from inside the belly of the beast so it depends on me on, 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 on our, our, our dispositions as African intellectuals. And some, when they get to the positions in North America, in Europe, they then say they've arrived and they actually lose the whole uh, purpose of the struggle. And they, they, they then become very individualistic. And that is a, a big problem. But uh, the issue is when we're in these institutions, the problem you are isolated, maybe you are one or two, uh, in this, but it doesn't then mean that we must stop fighting to open the the spaces. And you can find also that their solution, their understanding of decolonization, is not our understanding of decolonization. For them, they are working with the the notion of uh, equality, inclusivity, and uh, diversity. Of course, it is important to bring us in, but you need to change the structures, the institutions, and and the systems. Uh, to reflect really that the, the the Eurocentric colonial racial capitalist patriarchal uh, global system is changing. We don't want to be invited into an inimical pro- uh, structure like that. We need to change it. Yeah, and once again, that is because their starting point isn't from within Africa, it's from a different place. Of course, they, they seem not to see the problem the way we see it. This is where we need to be vigilant. That uh, when people use the same word decolonization, do they mean the same thing? When Europeans say decolonization, do they mean the same thing with what African people mean? When indigenous people talk about indigenous uh, uh, decolonization, do they mean the same thing with what the secular is saying? When the black uh, people of, 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 of North America and uh, South America, when they speak of decolonization, do they mean the same thing with what Trump means? They, 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 we can use the same terms, but meaning different things. Of course, of course. And this has happened not only with the term decolonization, it's happened with so many different concepts nowadays. Tell me, you spoke of the need to decolonize knowledge. In what way would you say can it be decolonized? And apart from knowledge, philosophy in general as well. Of course, decolonizing knowledge means a lot of things. One, it means we need to go back to the foundational question, who produces the knowledge which drives the world today? Uh, and from what geopolitical spatial spaces is that person thinking from? So that's that, that's one. At the moment, as I say, the dominant theory, the dominant philosophies, they still come from Europe and North America. And we need to decolonize by bringing in the philosophical ideas from other geospatial spaces, particularly from the global south, which in, 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 in real terms is the majority world. So in other words, the knowledge which drive this world is a knowledge of a minority. And we can't rely on a knowledge of a minority. This is why at the moment we are plunged into a crisis in which the knowledge which is running us at the moment, is inadequate and is exhausted. It cannot actually answer adequately to the modern problems. Uh, You can see it in the global financial crisis. You can see it in the pandemics. You can see it uh, in in ecological uh, disasters which are taking place. Uh, This knowledge is exhausted. And because it is exhausted, we need to decolonize, decolonize it for our own survival 
so that we take into account knowledge from indigenous people, knowledge from the so-called native people, knowledge from the black people, knowledge from Asians, knowledge from the Caribbeans, knowledge from the Latin Americans. And in that way, we will actually have a richer knowledge which might actually be able to take us out of this this uh, civilizational and epistemic crisis. So, so there is there, there is that level in which we need to begin to open the space the space by democratizing knowledge. And we must not even speak about knowledge. We must begin to speak about knowledges in the plural. Even the your computer will refuse to accept the word knowledges, but that is the correct word. The idea of knowledge, which is singular, is not a correct way because it actually encases the Eurocentric knowledge as the only knowledge. Uh, so that is one level. The second level of, uh, of decolonizing knowledge is also to make sure that we don't really rely on only academic knowledge. We need to think about other other forms of knowledge, the everyday knowledge, the knowledge is produced from the struggles. The knowledge is uh, epistemological or epistemologies of the global south. We need to bring them into, into the table. And we need to begin to imagine a new university in which there will be what we call ecologies of knowledges, various knowledges, knowledges coming from the feminist struggles, the womenist struggles. Uh, all those knowledges, they need to come to, to the center of, of, of the world so that we begin to have a richer knowledge, a highly textured knowledge, which begins to 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 be to react adequately to the challenges of today. So, so it's a also a, a decolonization means we need to also to do practical things like uh, changing our curriculum, um, so that the curriculum is not really reflective of European dominance. It must actually reflect the multiplicity of the world. So, so there is need to do that. There is need to, to, to also make sure what is called indigenous knowledge systems are also brought into, into, into the public domain. They don't subsist in the margins of, uh, of society and in the margins of the world. Uh, in fact, colonialism pushed them to the margins of the world because they were not in tandem with the colonial project of civilizing mission. So we will need now to actually know that they were pushed out, not because they were useless knowledges, they were pushed out because they were resistant to a particular knowledge which wanted to define a rule and own and exploit other people. So there is there is that. Then there is the third, if not fourth, point about the knowledge which we use today is produced mainly by men, both black and white. And we need also to push the decolonization project by depatriarchizing knowledge. And by that I mean we mean we must also bring in the knowledge of women uh, into we bring women as knowers within the, the domain of knowledge and whatever they've produced, their books, their philosophies, it must come in. It can't be a knowledge which is produced by a small elite, a bourgeois elite, a minority but producing knowledge for everyone. Yeah, I just have, a, I think, like two or three comments to make on, on the previous points that you've made. First of all, about the curriculum that you've mentioned that it needs to change. You know, I've, I've been to school when I was still a child in Russia for some time. 
And I saw that Russia has its own textbooks and its own authors, right? Then when, mm. when I moved to South Africa and I went to school, I noticed that the schools there, they're all stamped Cambridge. They're all stamped Oxford. They don't use their own textbooks. I think there might be only be one, if I'm not mistaken. I, I can't, unfortunately, recall mm. the name of the author. But it was it was really shocking to you know that South Africa, which is, you know, it, it is a mm. great country, but it still it uses a knowledge base of foreigners, not nothing of its own. Of course, that is not surprising. It is because of our colonial uh, legacy, which is not a legacy at all, which is still operational now, particularly in the knowledge domain. Uh, secondly, you are talking about Russians using Russian text. Russians they teach in schools in Russian language. Uh, Japanese teach in schools in Japanese language. Chinese teach in schools in Chinese language. But in Africa, you find throughout the 54 states, uh, we are teaching in the six colonial languages. And this is a reflection that we need to intensify the struggle for decolonization. Uh, it's uh, in, the, in the knowledge domain, we haven't really made a headway uh, because the issue was that uh, when colonialism came, it actually delegitimated all the other knowledges except that which it was carrying. And they, of course, we then made a mistake by buying into that into that uh, idea as a civilizing mission. And even after attainment of political independence, of course, we had initiatives like the establishment of the Institute of African Studies at Lekon in Ghana in 1961 under Nkrumah, where he was trying to say, let's have an Institute of African Studies which will document in the African music, African arts, African genius, African knowledges. But of course, by 1966, he was removed from power. And the, that whole project then plunged into crisis. Of course, the institute is still there, but it is not as radical as it was imagined at the beginning. And you remember also that in Ipadan, at the University of Ipadan, we had a very flourishing school of of uh, African nationalist historiography in the 1960s and 1970s. But he, what happened is that by 1970s, particularly by 1973, uh, the rise of the neoliberal project, it destroyed all the anti-colonial and the decolonial initiatives of the 1960s. And they, we began to, to fall into what today we would call commercialized knowledge, uh, corporatized knowledge. It's about the quantity of how many books you produced, how many articles you produced, but it's not about the profundity and the decolonial nature of the of the works. So the the decolonization which we are pushing now is a resurgent and insurgent decolonization which tries to connect to 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 the beginning when we were actually saying there is no way you can attain political independence without intellectual sovereignty. Uh, there is necessity for us to make sure that the political independence is echoed in a, in an African knowledge system, in a decolonized knowledge system. You can't actually run a country through a borrowed knowledge from somewhere. Yeah, and, and about the production of knowledge, I too noticed that it is now focused on as if mass production. It's all about, like you said, the number of uh, articles you write, the number of books you publish, which then obviously focuses on quantity rather than quality. So then 
we end up living in an information sphere, which is full of information, but some of it is, is either low quality or it's just a, a repetition of someone else's work, in other words, with a bit of a in- introspect or something. Yeah, but the interesting part of why why are we quantifying things? It is because we've been colonized by capitalist epistemology of dollars and the cents. So we are quantifying knowledge. We are defining students, not as students, but as customers because everything is to do with the capitalist logics. So there is another coloniality which is coming in from the capitalist system itself. The issue of log frames, the issue of writing reports, endless reports, uh, is, is about to quantify things. It has actually affected knowledge in a very bad way because economics is now econometrics. Everything is invented by quantification. And when it is quantified, it tends not to have to lose its philosophical, its sociological, its historical anchor to the extent that economic economists failed to even predict the coming of the global financial crisis because it is an impoverished knowledge, which is really about quantification of things rather than a, a imagination, imagining what is coming and predicting what is coming. A, the same with the biology, with the natural sciences. Why is it that they failed to predict that there was going to be a virus which was coming and it was going to devastate humanity, the coronavirus? It is because, again, the knowledge is is poor. Uh, immediately it is entered by this problem of capitalist epistemology, of quantification of things. It loses its power to predict things. Absolutely. And like you said, since it is poor and um, because it is created by a minority, we have run out of this knowledge. And since, I mean, any any person on the street, it is evident for him that the world that we live in, a lot of people are not satisfied with it. But since it is based on a knowledge system from a minority, that means that that knowledge system is, it, it has run out of potential. And I think that yeah, but it is also it also created this impression among even the students that he is accumulation of certificates without the love for knowledge itself. You come to the university, the first thing you ask, hey, will I finish my thesis within one year? Will I finish my thesis? The person doesn't care really about gaining knowledge, it's about gaining certificates, diplomas, and the degrees. That is how, how the, because the person wants to rush to look for a job. Uh, there, is, there is no need really to, to invest in knowledge for knowledge is set. Yeah, so it's all basically for financial gain because of yeah capitalism, like you said. Can you perhaps share some examples of African philosophers that you look up to, of you, you've worked with, and the ideas that have been historically overlooked but are now gaining recognition? Yeah, yeah. In fact, I... I don't want to reduce the concept of philosophy to people who, who started philosophy, philosophy as a discipline. I want to say anybody who, who, who demonstrates love for knowledge, uh, somebody who has profound contributions is a philosopher. This is why our, our PhDs, whether you did African languages, whether you did history, is called the doctor of philosophy. So philosophy, I want to use it in its most open way rather than to say those who studied a discipline called philosophy. And if we depart from that, you will find uh, scholars like Czech Atatiop from Senegal who single-handedly confronted uh, the Hegelian concept, conception and the philosophy of history and they argued that uh, Egypt was actually the citadel 
of civilization and even Greek philosophers, Greek civilization borrowed from Egypt. And as you know, his effect, even his PhD in France was initially rejected. Uh, and they, they only gave him the PhD later. But initially, because they did not agree with his idea to turn upside down the Eurocentric conception of the world in which Africa, in the Hegelian sense, was supposed to be negated. So I found somebody like Chekatatiop to be one of uh, leading historians, but also a leading philosopher. And then uh, you will find uh, other deep philosophers like uh, Imutimbe, Valentin Waimutimbe from the Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, who is now at Chuku University in the United States. So you remember he wrote these two influential books, The Invention of Africa and The Idea of Africa. And uh, in that uh, Invention of Africa, he articulated the problem of what he called the colonial library. That the colonial library seems to be destroying other libraries, the African library, the Islamic library, and the other forms of knowing. And it is that colonial library which is hegemonic today and which makes Africans uh, imitate and regurgitate uh, what, what, what is produced from Europe and North America. So VOMT is one of them. Um, you will find uh, other, 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 other philosophers who are very, very useful, like uh, Valentin, not Valentin, uh, what is his name, Pauline Wai Untonji from Benin, uh, who trained in philosophy in the in France. Initially, he was a very problematic thinker because he was very Eurocentric to the extent that he wrote this book on ethno-philosophy, which was very problematic. But later, he realized that he, he was making a mistake and he moved on to be the advocate of what he called endogeneity in Africa. In other words, why we must think from Africa into the world rather than thinking from Europe into Africa. Then you have um, other philosophers, modern philosophers like uh, Achil Mbembe from Cameroon, uh, who has contributed a number of works, uh, particularly beginning with his widely quoted book on uh, the post-colony, uh, where he really uh, reflected deeply uh, on the on what what happens after the so-called political independence. Uh, do we really, is it a rupture from pre-colonial, colonial? Is it something new or is really an entangled space in which the past, the present and the future are entangled together, creating all these post-colonial problems. So we have a number of them. Then we have also uh, women uh, philosophers who are normally neglected. Amina Mama from Nigeria, who has been pushing very hard the issue of depatriarchizing knowledge. Uh, Patricia McFartin from uh, Swaziland, but who spent most of his time in Zimbabwe. She has been a leading figure in uh, challenging the patriarchal sexist world order. You have um, a lot of other philosophers uh, or thinkers, uh, particularly uh, I work very closely with the philosophers and thinkers from Latin America, such as the recently uh, deceased uh, Enrique Dussel, uh, who was pushing forward the issue of philosophy of liberation. Um, and uh, you have um, philosophers like uh, Walter Di Mignolo, 
for Argentina, but based at Chuk University, who has been a leading figure in the debates on decolonization from a Latin American point of view. We have um, philosophers like Ramon Crossfogel from Puerto Rico, and the philosophers like uh, Nelson Matonato Torres from Puerto Rico, who gifted us with the concept of coloniality, of being, uh, of course, drawing from another black philosopher who is uh, uh, Slavia Winter from Jamaica, who also was the first to talk about that our being human itself is being colonized. And you can go back to, to other philosophers, uh, such as W.E.P. Dubois, uh, C.L.R.C. James, and many others who built what we call today the Black Radical Tradition, of which the decolonial struggles of today are drawing from that archive. Then we have uh, philosophers like uh, Franz Fanon, Amilka Cabral, uh, Kwame Nkrumah, uh, and, and, and many others. To name is really to, there are so many, but they are, as you said at the beginning, marginalized. Yeah, yeah. Th- uh, thanks for, for the shout out, Prof. Last year, in an interview, you mentioned Felwyn Saar, a Senegalese academic who introduced the concept of teleonomy, which is basically a concept of visualizing our future. What is your vision of Africa's future? Of course, the future of Africa can no longer be thought separate from the future of the world. I think that is a, a reality which we need to underscore. So the my work is really to underscore the fact that there is a rich, there are rich ideas from Africa which can actually improve uh, this world which we live in. Uh, such ideas as philosophical ideas as Ubuntu, which come straight from African African philosophy, African cosmology, and the African epistemology, whereby you 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 define humanity different from the way Europe defines it. Uh, you define humanity in compositional terms. I am because you are. How do we tap into that to project into a world beyond the colonizers model of the world, beyond the capitalist model of the world, which is about profits? The capitalist world is about profits. The colonizers model of the world is about domination uh, of other people. But Ubuntu, if you bring it into the fore, is not about anybody dominating. It's about coexistence. And we need to draw from such ideas. I also reflect on other ideas from uh, the global south, such as Pachamama, from uh, the indigenous people in, uh, in the Caribbean in Latin America which also is very close to the idea of of Ubuntu, uh, which comes from Southern Africa. And uh, it also gives us another vision of the world. And and I'm raising these two. They are many because the underlying problem why we want to change is because we are in a crisis. And there is no doubt about that. Even Europeans accept that we are in a crisis. And the crisis manifests itself in the sense that all the visions of the future, the Marxist vision, uh, liberal vision, uh, nationalist vision, they've all hit against the wall. And what we need to do is to then rethink and uh, tap into all these other ideas to revision again and uh, to reworld and uh, to refuture 
refuturing. There are other people who are actually engaged in scholarship of defuturing, whereby they are saying, ah, after all, we're reaching what some will call an apocalypse, the end of the world. I don't believe in that. I think uh, it is a particular civilization which is collapsing. It is the Western civilization, which if you want to date it, you date it from 1500 to 2023. That one is in crisis and uh, it is dying. And the Emias is there from Montenegro predicted in 1955 that this civilization is decadent. This civilization will die. It is poor because it polarizes people, it divides people, it racializes people, it hierarchizes people. And it is reaching its end at the moment. Secondly, you must realize that also what is at experience the deep crisis is the U.S. hegemony from 1945 to 2023. And it is failing really to lead the world. Uh, it is violating even some of its own rules. It arrogates itself being the custodian of, uh, of human rights, but at the same time, it is the violator of human rights. Look at what is happening in the Gaza at the moment. And they look at how the world is taking that, 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 that genocide. They are looking the other side. And they, was it not they who said a civilization which looks, looks away from the problems it creates is a decadent civilization which is, which is about to die. And uh, we can see that practically today. And uh, what is also failing at the moment is what we call the neoliberal project from 1973 to 2003. It is also failing. The, the financial crisis is actually an indictment on the terminal crisis of, 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 of capitalism itself. So really we are in a, in, a, in a deep crisis, which is systemic, which is institutional, which is uh, uh, structural. And uh, what we, we need to do, we need to borrow maybe an idea from Mao Zedong. Mao Zedong said, there is a turmoil under the heavens, the situation is excellent. In other words, when there is a crisis like this, don't let a good crisis to waste. You need to begin to plug in and create another world. Yep, in every crisis, there's, a, there's an opportunity. We were talking about visualizing Africa's future. A big factor that influences our ideas and vision is the information that we are exposed to. And in today's world of Western-dominated media and knowledge systems where Western ideals and values are promoted and propagated, what can African people turn to in order to have an independent vision? Yeah, in fact, the, 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 the issue is that uh, a lot of people are now conscious that... Uh, this uh, idea of uh, pursuit of um, endless growth, economic growth, uh, predicated on a capitalist logics of extraction is the one which has plunged us into an environmental and ecological crisis. So they are thinking about alternatives to that. So the beauty of the time, as I said, is that uh, people are losing confidence in the Eurocentric visions of the world. They are losing confidence in the colonizers model of the world. And not that they had even confidence in it. They were failing to come out of it because it was strong. But it is a weakest now. And because of that weakest, weak, weakness, uh, you will find that uh, it is now possible to imagine alternatives. Um, you will not actually speak about epistemologies of the global south when the Colonizers model 
of the world was still in full swing, when the knowledges of Europe were still very confident. There is a lot of uncertainties of knowledges at the moment. And from that uncertainties of knowledges, that's when we're plugging in other knowledges and beginning to talk instead of universalism as, a, as an ideal end to talk about pluriversalism. And the pluriversalism speaking to the issue of we need to enter into a world of all of us here on the planet, but we need not to be like anybody else. So you, you will find that uh, uh, during the full swing of colonizers model of the world, uh, even women were supposed to accept that men are superior, men are the leaders, but nowadays they are questioning that because it has proven that it is not true. So, so there is a there is a lot of windows which are opening. The indigenous people in in Canada, in Australia, in New Zealand, in Latin America, they are beginning to say maybe the way we relate to nature is the best way to relate to nature, which can save the planet, than the way Europeans, uh, European thought, uh, uh, and its relation to nature is. So there is a a little bit of a, of a window of opportunity to imagine from African indigenous knowledge system, from native people's knowledge systems, from women's knowledge systems. So there is, when 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 this dominant knowledge becomes uncertain, it means it is now humble enough to open up to other possibilities. Thanks, Prof. What concrete steps would you propose for the amplification and recognition of African philosophies and knowledge systems on the global scale? Of course, one, one, one practical issue is that we cannot teach as usual. We need to bring these African philosophers into on the table and not just as an addition to Eurocentric philosophers, but we need to bring them as disruptors of what has been going on for a long time. So, so when, 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 you, when you bring them into your curriculum, when you bring them into your pedagogy, when you bring them into whatever you do in a university, you need really to bring them in their own terms, not in the terms of Eurocentrism. The major problem about the decolonization of the 20th century was that it was a decolonization which was predicated on our wish to be included in what Fanon called the European game. And uh, when you are fighting for being included in a European game, the problem is you don't know the terms of the game. You don't know the rules of the game. So the person whom you you want to include you still keeps the script of the rules of the game. So the decolonization of today questions these exact rules of the game, the terms of the rules of the game. And they were beginning to say, no, this rule cannot work for us. So we need to negotiate the rules. We need to destroy some other rules because they close us out. So, so it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an escalation of deep consciousness of African people and the people of African descent, as well as people of the global south, that they are beginning really to say, we wanted to create a world of ourselves and other selves. In fact, we wanted to, to delink from the world, the colonizers model world in which Europe and North America are at the center. So you will find that this manifests itself in other, in other expressions such as de-Westernization, in which Russia, in which China, in which the, the emerging powers of the East are actually taking the lead 
problematic as it might be because it is problematic in the sense that it is not yet decolonial. It is de-Westernization. They are shifting from from uh, worshipping the West as the leader of the world and recreating the global East. Uh, but at the same time, they are not dropping the capitalist logics. But it is a disrupting moment. As you know, the the, the expansion of the BRICS is one example of a uh, of uh, what Europe fears most, and they want to interfere in in, in that. And the idea of de-dollarization, so that we 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 use other currencies, is actually a disruption of Western hegemony. So they 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 there is a lot of things happening, and they, there is no doubt that the capital of capital is it shifted from Britain to America. Now it will shift east to China. So, so, so those shifts are important in themselves, despite the fact that they are not really at the level of decolonization. How long would you estimate would it take to fully decolonize our world as it is in all senses? The issue is uh, people must not rush. It's a struggle. Uh, there is no blueprint. There is no ready-made blueprint. After all, we are fighting an over 500 years old system. And to think that after two years you will have dismantled everything, it will be an illusion. So it will take time, really. We need to present resistance and destruction as a constant for the people who are oppressed. And they must not rush to be tired of, of struggling and resisting because the dominators are not tired of dominating them. So it's, it's, a, it's an important issue that they must not look for uh, quick, 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 quick achievements. As, as, as Capral says, claim no easy victories, tell no lies. This is a struggle and the inner struggle. Uh, we will make a lot of mistakes. We will fail on others. We will achieve what, but it must not stop us. Um, we need to be experimental. We need to be open that uh, even if we fail, let let it be. We will fail while trying to create another world. Yeah, the main point is to to fail and, and get up again and and keep keep trying. In your opinion, how can African philosophers reshape our understanding of societal structures and power dynamics as we see them today? Uh, obviously, it's a multi level um, struggle. Uh, one, you need to change the colonized minds of Africans themselves. Uh, and that is not an easy, an easy, an easy process because it's self-negation, isn't? Uh, if you are a modern people like us, it means we've absorbed and absorbed uh, coloniality in through the school system, through the church, and it needs a deliberate uh, consciousness, which actually is predicated on unlearning what was learned, which is not promoting our own agendas. So there is that that level of the personal, but uh, there is also the level, as we say, it of institutions. Uh, universities have particular institutional cultures, which are Eurocentric, which are patriarchal, which are sexist, and uh, we need to begin to change those. Um, and then there is uh, the systemic level. The systemic level is where. I gave the example of what is happening with the with the with the de-westernization to really shift the system itself. 
Uh, and uh, you must understand that we are at the moment between the shift from empire to modern nation state, uh, which happened mainly after 1945. Uh, that shift from empire to the modern nation state, in other words, the world before 1945 was organized into empires. The world after 1945 became reorganized into nation states. And we were quick to celebrate that that is decolonization. And they were realizing now that that was not correct. So it is important that uh, we begin to see the world beyond uh, beyond this as a polycentric world. A polycentric world, in other words, there will be many centers of power, not only the U.S. as the center of power and the Europe as the center of power. There will be many centers of power. and. Uh, the issue is who who will lead that world and the, how will it be led? Uh, the problem with the current world is led by the United States. It doesn't want other powers to emerge. It 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 wants to run a world in which it is the only superior uh, uh, power, and the other powers are you hunt them. If you hear the weapons of mass destruction, you hunt them. You kill the leaders. It happened in. Uh, and uh, in in Iraq, they went for Libya. They are they are now going for Iran. So the idea that you are refusing others to gain power, who will live in such a world? People will resist you until you fall. Uh, but we need uh, to to envision a world in which there will be many powerful power uh, powers and. They, they, there is no problem to have powerful powers and there are multiple of them as long as there is a concept of how to govern that world. Yeah, Prof, and on your on your previous point, I think that this process of complete decolonization, apart from time, it also demands sacrifice in the sense that if we're fighting against a system that has been entrenched in the political systems, in our societies and our minds for, like you said, 500 years, then it will obviously take generations to reshape to reshape this system and people have to be willing to die without seeing immediate change and with a strong belief in the future and a strong sense of trust as well towards our descendants that they will also take up the struggle and continue into the future and also be willing to die without seeing immediate change we have already some some hope in multi-class multi-racial multi-generational Movements. When uh, George Floyd was killed in the United States, we saw the the reaction of the world. Uh, a lot of people said we are tired of this, including Europeans. Including, we saw multi-class attack on the statues. So there is a potential that people are getting tired of this world of divisions, uh, and uh, and uh, they are getting tired within a context in which the worlds are collapsing on each other. It's no longer possible to keep Africans to Africa, keep Europeans to Europe, keep Americans to America. People are getting more entangled together. And the systems, the institutions and the structures of the 20th century are no longer adequate to this reality. And this is why you will find in desperation in some countries thinking of creating walls around the countries, crawling people like cows. That, that is a sign of failure, decadent thinking uh, in a world in which there is a plurality. People are, are coming together in various ways, whether you like it or not. Uh, races are coming together in various ways. So 
the, the, the issue is that there is a, a, a thinking which is backward. There are institutions which are backward. There are systems which are backward. There are, inst- they, there are laws and the policies which are backward, which were prepared for a 20th century uh, world, but uh, they are not in tandem with the world of today. And uh, we need to, the universities need to take the lead in teaching that let's, 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 let's not rely on thinking of the 20th century, the 21st century. This idea of contained nation states, the people of a place and the people outside, out of a place, that's a 20th century nationalism. And it is no longer in tandem with this world which we live in. Absolutely, absolutely. People should begin to understand that whether we like it or not, we live on a single planet unless we begin to explore ways of living on other planets. In fact, the issue is, uh, in the last 500 years, there was this attempt to, to... continentalize people, create continents. They created continents. Continents are not natural. They were created by Europe, uh, trying to continentalize people. Then later they said, you know, after continentalization, let's nationalize people. Let's create nation states. And they close them in and they draw boundaries. The reality of the matter is that it is in human nature. Mobility is part of human nature. Settlement is part of human nature. You can't legitimize one, which is settlement, and delegitimize the other, which is mobility. You you can't do that. You're actually interfering with the human with the human attributes. It is not that people travel because they are poor. Some people, when they have money, they travel more, and they shift from wherever they were staying and they go and they stay somewhere else. It is in the human nature. So what we need to do is to decriminalize mobility. Uh, and uh, we do this as we challenge the colonizers model of the world, whereby people are closed into continents, they are closed into nation states. This has These containers have failed. And uh, this is why you have the Mexico uh, border, the wall. This is why you have in, 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 in Israel the fence and all that. That is the relic of dangerous thinking about containerizing and nationalizing people and closing them into spaces and saying people who are migrating are a problem. They are not a problem. This is human nature. The planet belongs to them. They allow them to go wherever they want to go. Absolutely. You can't keep the the spirit of human exploration bound behind walls. It's like pressurizing a container and then expecting it just to, the the air or whatever is pressurized inside, just to stay there without... So so, so immediately we think that way. We can now see that it is important to, to have another knowledge, which will actually be in tandem with the human movements. Uh, not knowledge which says there is a crisis, uh, there is a crisis, migration is a crisis. And then you ask them, when, when did migration become a crisis because you migrated from Europe into the rest of the world from the 15th century? And then you had no passports, you had nothing when you were moving into Zimbabwe, into all these countries. That was a massive movement of Europeans into the rest of the world. Why is it now that it is movement from the global south, it becomes a problem? That's a very, very good point that I don't think that Westerners nowadays can can answer. They'll, they'll come up with all sorts of reasons. But... Yeah, but that's what we need to teach them, that there is no migration crisis. The crisis is the crisis of your mind, a racist mind. 
a nationalist mind which is not tandem with the today prof uh, thank you very much for your time it was a very very interesting conversation with you um i know i promised only to keep you busy for half an hour but um yeah it ended up stretching out into no it's a very important conversation and i think my suggestion is that uh, you need to open up with this concept of what is a philosopher mm, mm. Uh, because uh, a lot of people when you think about philosophers they are thinking about those who started philosophy but when it comes to europe socrates and all these other people did not study philosophy they are called philosophers today but the way did they study philosophy yeah Yeah. Karl Marx is called the sociologist. Where did he start sociology? Because once again this concept or rather the concepts getting uh, different definitions by different knowledge systems. Yeah, and so it is a problem of uh, what we call disciplinary knowledge. That the philosophy is a discipline. Uh, history is a discipline. Sociology is a discipline. Psychology is a discipline. I think when we, when 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 we when 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 I saw your questions The idea is that we need to open up what is a philosopher. A philosopher is a is a thinker, a critical thinker. I think this is this is also maybe a projection from the colonial mindset of dividing everything, dividing knowledge as well. You see, because once again, like you said, dividing knowledge into disciplines that uh, history is history and, and it cannot overlap with something else it is just history and sociology is just sociology meanwhile and because you are interviewing me here in the celebration of the philosophy day but I'm not a philosopher me is <laughs> <laughs> this is this is our way of uh, of decolonizing these concepts exactly exactly thank you so much <laughs> no you're very welcome professor thank you for joining us Once again prof I just like to take another opportunity to say thank you for your time the real insight into this problem that is not often raised that you've given to us So now we've been listening to Professor Sabelo Lovogatsheni a decolonial and postcolonial theorist discussing the decolonization of knowledge systems and the place of African knowledge and philosophy in the world. Thank you for joining us today and I truly hope that you enjoyed this episode. In case you missed a part of this podcast, well feel free to rewind on popular podcasting platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Deezer, Castbox, Pocket Casts, Afripods and of course Podcast Addict. If you're more of a reader then feel free to go to the Sputnik Africa website and enjoy the numerous articles we have there. However, for shorter digests, go right ahead to our Sputnik Africa Telegram channel, TikTok account and other socials to get the juiciest information from across the globe. Keep exploring the importance of alternative knowledge systems, teachings and philosophies and don't forget that every one of us is a philosopher in some sense. Happy philosophy day to everyone and until next time. Afro Verdict brought to you by Sputnik Africa.